All right, so Valentine's Day is past. And some of you are grateful for that. Some of you don't like Valentine's Day because it reminds you that maybe your Valentine is gone or maybe you don't currently have one. Like me, I was nearly 30 years old before I was married and in my 20s, I hated Valentine's Day. Still not my favorite holiday, but I've grown a little bit better on it. But some of you love it because it's the one day a year when you get treated well, that someone says, I love you, and brings you gifts and flowers and candy, and you think, you wish you had this all the other days of the year, but on this one day, you get treated nicely. But all of that is now past us. And I don't know whether you had a a great Valentine's Day and you hope to relive it, Or yours was awful and you wish I wouldn't have even brought it up this morning and you want to move forward. But regardless of what your Valentine's Day was like, I want to talk about love this morning. And I want to do so because the Bible talks about love, all kinds of love. The Bible talks, in fact, we did last week from 1 John 2 verse 5, we talked about our love for God. And we acknowledged then that it is in response to God's love for us. Of course, you know that the Bible talks about marital love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We know it talks about the parent relationship between parent and child. We know that Jesus himself said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This is the model Jesus gave us of what genuine love looks like. His dying for us, giving us then an example to follow. Now, it's not just that. Clearly, that is the whole realm of salvation. So I'm not not bringing that down to just an example to follow at any rate. But that is an example to follow, that Jesus has shown us how we are to love one another. In fact, he says on another occasion, "'By this shall all men know that you are my disciples.'" And so then he's going to tell us what is the characteristic, perhaps even above all other characteristics, by which people outside the church know that we are followers of Christ. And he says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one toward another. That is love within the the bonds of the relationship of the church, love between brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be evident to the world outside so much so that having seen our love, they desire to be a part of it. Well, that is not exactly what I'm talking about this morning. What I'm talking about this morning is not how we ought to be a light to the community, though we should. I am not talking about how we ought to love those who do not know Christ, though of course we should. I'm talking today about how you and I are to love one another within the body of Christ, that is loving our fellow believers. And what I'm going to ask you to do is examine your heart and your life to see if you're doing that. And I'm only asking you that because that's what John asked you to do. John, as we've said, gives us a series of tests. Now, this is not like a test that you take in school, that if you pass enough enough of them, then you're going to heaven. This is not work, salvation. John is simply trying to distinguish between those who have left the church, who he clearly says are no believers at all in spite of their claims, with those who remain in the church 
and do in fact have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he's trying to separate these two and say, what does it look like to have a vital relationship with Christ? And what does it look like to merely say we do, but not really possess it? And so throughout the book, he's giving a series of tests. We've already looked at what we might call the moral test, and that is the practicing of truth. You remember, we, start with, we started with proclaiming truth, that is, we profess. But we went on to say from that, that profession alone is not enough. We must also practice. We will, in the future, look at what we might call the doctrinal test. That is, do we believe the right things? Do we have a, a sure belief in what we call the fundamentals or the core orthodox elements of our faith? But today, we are looking at what we might call the social test. That is love within the body of Christ. So here's what I want to do for you today. I want to help you improve your love life. Yeah. I'm going to improve your love life. Now, when we hear that phrase, we think romantic, don't we? And you also think, he's got no business telling me how to improve my love life because he doesn't know what he's doing. And you'd be right about that part. So I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm not talking about marital relationships. I'm talking about our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. And in that regard, all of us need an improvement on our love life. None of us are perfect there, far from it, and so all of us have room to grow. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes." All right, so how do we go about improving our love life? Well, first of all, we need to accept the command. That is, there is a clear command here that we are called to love one another. We are never going to consistently love one another and grow in that love until we acknowledge that this is a command from God for us as his people. This is not optional. This is not a take it or leave it kind of thing. This is a command in the scriptures. Now, in verses 7 and 8, there appears to be a contradiction. John claims to be repeating an old command. And then he says, no, I'm giving you a new command. So he seems to say both things. And if we're not careful, we read verses 7 and 8, and we say, okay, John, which one is it? You're being a bit wishy-washy here. But, of course, we hold to a high view of Scripture, and so we do not think John is confused or contradicting himself, and therefore we must dig a little deeper to figure out what he is talking about here. He begins this section with the word beloved, another term of endearment. Last week we saw the phrase little children, and we said that was the first of seven occurrences in 1 John of that word. 
And now this word beloved, this is the first of six occurrences in this letter. So clearly John has a relationship with these believers to whom he is writing like a spiritual father to his spiritual children. And because of this relationship, he is writing these words to them. So this command, he says, is in some sense as old as written revelation. Verse 7 tells us that the command to love one another is nothing new. John is not about to give them another rule. He is not stating another regulation that they haven't heard. He is not blindsiding them with something that they weren't told when they signed on to follow Jesus Christ. This is something they have known from the beginning. Now the question is, what beginning? And there is some scholarly debate as to what that phrase means from the beginning. Is John going all the way back to the beginning of time? That is, even in the Old Testament, if we go back to the first few books of the Bible, is it found there? Or is John talking about the beginning of their relationship with Christ? That is, when they first heard and when they first committed to following Christ. And again, there are people on both sides of that discussion or debate. And the way we fall on that is not really going to change what we think here. But I do think in some sense he's going all the way back. In fact, you can go back to a statement that Jesus made. One time, Jesus, one time an expert of the law asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Jesus goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. And then right after that, he says, he quotes Leviticus 19.18, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're following along in our read through the Bible, you have read those two statements very recently because we're in numbers. And so you've already read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So Jesus says, love the Lord your God with everything you've got and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then he concludes that by saying, on this hang all the law and the prophets. Now, what does that mean? How can Jesus say that really everything can be summed up by those two statements, love God with everything you are, and then love your neighbors as yourself. Well, Jesus can say that because he knows that love for God comes first, and we've already talked about how our love of God is contingent upon his love for us. We love him because he first loved us. But having loved God then, it is natural for that to flow out into love for our neighbors. And if we then love our neighbors, we will not violate them in the other ways that the commandments warn us about. For example, if I genuinely love God and love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal from my neighbor. So I'm not going to violate the command, thou shalt not steal. Because I love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal from them. Because I love my neighbor, I am not going to strive to commit adultery with my neighbor. So I'm going to fulfill the law, thou shalt not commit adultery, because I love my neighbor enough not to do that. And on and on we could go with the various commands throughout Scripture. That's why Jesus could say that this sums up everything. Love God, loving God flows then to loving your neighbor, and then all the law is followed from that. And so John says here, this command is nothing new. It is as old as written or recorded revelation. But it is also new as Jesus' incarnation. Again, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And again, we ask, is this new or old? 
The answer is yes. It's an old commandment that we find in the Old Testament, but Jesus takes this old commandment and makes it new in the sense in which he deepens it and even widens it. Jesus takes this old command and transforms it into something well beyond what any of them thought. He takes the extent of it and reaches it far beyond what they had imagined. You see, the Jews were accustomed to loving their own. I mean, a Jew loved another Jew. That was natural and normal. And we we have that same idea. We love those who are like us. We love those who are close to us. That comes natural to us. In fact, the Bible says elsewhere that even the pagans do that. I mean, that's the easy part of love. So the Jews loved other Jews, but they didn't so much love the Gentiles. And that's why you see so much issues in the New Testament about Gentiles in the church, how they are brought in with the Jews. The Jews did not love Samaritans. They were half-breeds. They avoided them going out of their way. In fact, that brings up a a very prominent parable that you are perhaps familiar with, the parable of the good Samaritan, which in the Jewish mind was an oxymoron. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Now, we, we think of that title, and we still use that phrase, and we think nothing of it. But for the Jew, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. And yet Jesus had told a man to love his neighbor. And he said, well, who's my neighbor? And in response to that question, Jesus tells this parable about a man who is robbed and left to die. And two Jews come by, one a a, uh, Levite and one a a priest. And they come by and do nothing. They walk on the other side of the road and, and don't do anything. And then a Samaritan comes by, and the Samaritan sees the man in need, and he helps him, takes him to an inn, pays for his care, and he says, if there's anything else when I come back, I'll pay you the rest. And Jesus asks the question, which one of these loved his neighbor? And the man who he's talking to can't even bear to say the word Samaritan, and so he says, the one who showed mercy. So Jesus widens the definition of who it is we are to love. It is no longer just those who are like us. It is everybody and anybody because that is the example that he gave us. Jesus himself loved those who were his enemies. Jesus himself loved those for whom he died. And so he gives us this new command. It was new in the sense that uh, Jesus expanded it. It was new in the sense that it's relatively new to them because they're not far removed from the time Jesus spoke it. And it certainly continues to be new to us by virtue of the fact that we are to continue to apply it to our day and to our situation so that love knows no bounds. We are to emulate the kind of love that Jesus has shown us in the way we treat others. Again, I know we're talking specifically about how we treat others in the body of Christ, but we also know the Bible talks about how we love others outside the body of Christ. So Jesus here takes an old command and makes it new. And that's what John is saying. He is saying this is a command that we have to obey. This is not optional. This is a command, beloved, love one another. Now, those of you who come here on a regular basis know and can testify that I don't wade into politics very much. In fact, almost never. But I'm going to this morning because I think it applies here. We are called to love one another in the body of Christ. And what I'm seeing, not just in this church, but across the spectrum, is that our political affiliations, 
the party that we are aligned with and the people with whom we are aligned are becoming and are more important than our relationship with fellow believers in the church of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, that ought not to be so. The gospel is supposed to transcend all of that. My relationship with you and your relationship with the person sitting next to you is supposed to be united together because we are united with Christ. And it has become so that if someone does not believe like we believe and vote like we vote, that we are calling them names either in person or online and we are even questioning their salvation on the basis of their vote and we are dividing in the body of Christ over politics. And that is not what Jesus came to do. We do not have problems with Jews and Samaritans. That's not our issue. We don't have problems with Jews and Gentiles. That is not our issue. But we do have problems with Republicans and Democrats and trying to make sure everybody thinks the way we think and conclude that if they don't, there's something missing in their relationship with Christ. And that troubles me. And it's not just in politics. It's in the Southern Baptist Convention. I spent a couple hours last night combing through some things that have recently come up in the Southern Baptist Convention. We're doing the same thing as a convention. We cannot get along with one another anymore. We cannot have a civil discussion where we disagree about an important topic. And in the Southern Baptist Convention, it is also national politics. It is also Southern Baptist politics. And it is also theology. None of those things we can discuss anymore without calling each other names. And without concluding that someone is or is not lost on the basis of what they believe. And what I'm trying to say is this command to love one another transcends all of that. And we need to get back to accepting the fact that this is a command from God that crosses all other lines. I've just used that as an example. It crosses all other lines so that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are first and foremost united under the gospel and then we can disagree on some things, but we better do it in love. We need to accept the command. But secondly, he reminds us that we are to avoid the opposite. Like so many things, there are, there are some things to avoid and there are some things to practice. And we're going to start with the things to avoid here. If it is brotherly love that we are called to emulate, then of course we have to avoid the opposite of love, which John says is hate. So avoiding hate begins with honestly assessing your current profession. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, whoever says. Now this is where I, I told you last week that it's difficult in John with the structure to divide it. Because this is actually the third of three statements that begins like this. And they really ought to all go together, but I divided them. So if you look back at verse 4, in verse 4 he says, whoever says, I know him. And then verse 6, whoever says, he abides. And then verse 9, whoever says, he is in the light. And all three occasions, John is saying, there, there are some people who are making a profession, but the way they're living their lives does not back up the profession that they're making. So I'm asking you to assess your current profession. If you claim to know Christ but you hate fellow believers, then John is saying, it's not me, it's John, that your profession is not valid. Now, when I first mentioned the word hate, you, you sort of breathe a sigh of relief. I mean, that's a strong word. We don't use that word very much. There are very few people that we would just honestly say, you know what, I hate so-and-so. I mean, we would never go that far. Most of us, there might be one or two people in our lives. But by and large, we, we don't tend to say, I hate somebody. 
So I'm not saying do you ever say that. What I'm asking you to do is analyze the way you live your life and are there occasions, are there people that you are acting toward them as if, in fact, you really do hate them. We may dislike someone or feel a bit of animosity toward them, but we're hesitant to say we actually hate them. But in assessing our current profession, John only leaves us two options. Either we love one another, or if we're not, he calls it hating one another. He, he defines this as a very black and white issue, which is, which is why we don't like John in many ways, because he's so very clear. I mean, he doesn't leave room for rationalization. So you say, well, how can we distinguish the two? How do I know whether or not I am loving my fellow believers or not? And that leads to our second point here. We need to honestly assess our current practice. How is it that you are living your life? Not just what you're saying, but now what are you actually doing? And we'll talk about the love side of the equation in just a moment. And when we do so, uh, if, if that doesn't describe you, In other words, when we get to love and you can't see yourself there, then that means you're here whether you want to admit it or not. Verse 11 tells us that those who hate their brothers are in darkness and they walk in darkness. And again, we've seen that walk repeatedly. And that's not a one-time thing. It's not a one relationship thing. I'm not talking about do you have problems with one person in your life. I'm talking about your walk, your lifestyle, the characterization of how it is you live, what describes you as an individual, the practice of your life. And so in assessing our current practice, let me give you a few questions to ask yourself. Do you constantly criticize someone either to their face or behind their back? If you are constantly being critical of them, I would not describe that as loving toward them. And therefore, again, John only gives you one other option. Do you, do you uh, operate on the basis not of love, but on the basis of hate? Do you wish to, for others to stumble rather than be successful? You say, well, again, I wouldn't normally say that, but I do tend to think that. In other words, I get jealous when someone else has success and I don't. So deep down, I really want them to fail. Would you rather just not be around someone? That is, I can't stand to be around them, and so I try to avoid them. And again, clearly that's not love. And therefore, under John's two categories, there is only one other option. The third element avoiding the opposite is to honestly assess your current direction. Where is it? Are you going? Where is it that you are going to in life? Verse 11, he goes on to say there that this person does not know where he is going. When you walk in the light and when you walk in love, and again, we said those are two of the major themes in 1 John, light instead of darkness and love instead of hate, and we'll see it again and again. When you walk in light and in love, you are motivated by that. And yet when you live in darkness, it is inevitable that you are going to stumble, he says, and you are going to be a cause of stumbling to others. And both of these things feed on themselves. In other words, the more we walk in the light, the more we love. And yet the more we walk in darkness, the more we stumble. Those two things go together. And so light and love, and yet darkness and stumbling. So we've got to assess where we are in all of these things to know where we are going. If you have ever visited uh, an assisted living facility, 
And I would encourage you to do that. We have a number of people in our church who, who live in these facilities to one, in one varying degree or another. Some are independent living, some are assisted living, some are more than that. But if you've ever gone into one of those and visited somebody, you know that there can be a vast difference in how your visit goes. What I mean by that is this. Some of those folks are just angry and bitter. I mean, they are not pleasant to visit. Let's just be honest. They, they are not pleasant to visit. You go in there, and they're critical, they're negative, they hate where they are, they hate what life has done to them, all they want to do is get out, everything is awful, the food is terrible, and that part's probably true, but I mean, the rest of it, they're just negative about everything, and you walk out of there going, man, I, I, I don't want to visit them again. But then you might go right down the hall and visit somebody else, and it is an entirely different visit. They are filled with joy. They're not complaining, they're not bitter, they're not angry, and yet they're in the same facility, eating the same food, doing the same routine, and yet they're vastly different from someone else. And the question is, what's the difference? What's the difference between these two senior citizens who are living in assisted living, and one is just angry and bitter, and one is filled with joy and leaves you encouraged when you leave them, even though you came to encourage them? And the answer is the pattern of their life. And what I mean by that is if you're angry and bitter at 40 or 30 or 50, you're going to be one of those we don't want to visit because that's the direction your life is heading. And so when you get to 85 or older and you're in one of these facilities, people aren't going to visit you because your anger and bitterness has been building over all of these years and that's the direction of your life. And if that's the direction of your life, it needs to change and that's difficult. Because walking in darkness, we're blind to all of that. We cannot see where we are going. It's not impossible to change. It is impossible on your own, but God in Christ can certainly change you. And so if you see yourself in that situation this morning, don't continue to walk in darkness. Don't continue to deny that you're not walking in darkness. Acknowledge that you are and turn your life to Christ and say, God, I want to change and I need you to change me. I understand that there is a command to love and I've not been doing that. I understand there is something to avoid and that is hate and I don't want to go down that path. And so we come to our third point and not just avoiding the opposite, but we need to act on the positive. Once again, we've said this often, it's not a matter of one or the other. You can't just avoid the opposite. You must also act on the positive. And so that is where we are talking about love. That is where we bring in Valentine's Day. I love you. No doubt you at least said that on Valentine's Day to someone, or hopefully someone said it to you. But I'm not talking about how you said it. I'm not talking about how often you repeat those words. I'm talking about what love looks like as we live it out. Again, last week in verse 5, we saw love for God. But if we're going to improve our love life, we've got to understand some things about love. Number one, love requires time. That is, if you love someone, you are going to spend time with them. No one has to make you. No one has to coerce you. No one has to manipulate you. If you love someone, you are going to do everything in your power to prioritize the time you have to spend with them because that is what love does. And so when John says that we are to love the brothers, it means we ought to, in part, spend time with them. I'm confident I told you this story many years ago. I'm equally confident that you've probably forgotten it. So I'm going to tell it again. 
I had a roommate in seminary. I had many roommates through my college and seminary days because I was single and perhaps hard to live with. Who knows? But one particular uh, roommate I had came home from Christmas break. He lived in Florida. We were in Memphis. He came home from Christmas break, and guess what? He was in love. I mean, you could see it. He talked about it. He had met this girl over Christmas break, and I don't know, it's what, three or four weeks Christmas break? But he came back from those three or four weeks. He was not only in love, but he was determined to get engaged, and this was the girl he was going to marry. It was a done deal. He knew this was the direction of his life. There was only a few problems. Number one, I began to notice that he never talked to this girl. Now, this was before FaceTime, so you couldn't, you know, you couldn't get on technology and, and communicate that way, and so there was plenty of miles between them, but, but they weren't talking on the phone. And so one day I said to him, Randy, I mean, if you're so in love, how come you're not talking to her? Well, she told me that the sound of my voice makes it harder for her to be away, and so she'd rather not talk. So, well, that doesn't sound very good, but... He was in love, so he had those blinders on. And so he wrote her letters. If she wasn't going to talk on the phone, he wrote her letters. Again, this was before email or texting. You had to physically write letters and mail them, and that's what he would do over and over again. I don't remember how often, but repeatedly he wrote her letters. But guess what? Never got one in response. No letters. So, Randy, how come, how come you're not getting letters back? Oh, she's real busy. You know, she does this for a living, and then she's, I think she's doing some school inside, whatever. I don't remember the details, but she was just too busy to write. You won't be surprised to learn that a few weeks after that, and this whole thing was, I don't know, two or three months, but a few weeks later, he got word through a friend that she was engaged, but it wasn't to him. She was engaged to somebody else. Now, was I an expert in love then or now? No. So how did I know something was wrong? Because I knew that love requires time and that people who love each other want to spend time together, whether that's in person or whether it's on the phone, and that wasn't happening, and so there were red flags all over the place. So number one, love requires time. Nobody has to manipulate you. It is simply your desire. And so John is saying here that if we are to love one another in the body of Christ, We want to do exactly what we're doing this morning, spend time with other believers. We want to be in in small groups with them, whether that's called Sunday school or life groups or whatever else. We want to be around other believers because we love other believers. That's simply a part of what it means to love one another. It's a hard truth to swallow, but again, I think John makes it very clear. If you claim to love God but effectively hate the people of God, because you never want to be with the people of God, then you should have serious questions about your relationship with God. I just started reading a book yesterday by David Platt entitled, Something Needs to Change. Now, when I bought this book, I did not know anything about it, had no idea what it was about. I just bought it because, well, it was David Platt. I've read books by David Platt before. They've never disappointed, so I saw he had a new book out, and I bought it. Turns out it's not the normal Christian book that you might think. It's not really about the steps to discipleship and all of that. What it really is, is it is a journal of a week-long hiking trip that David Platt took with about three other guys in the Himalayas. And it chronicles his hiking trip. Now, it's not just about hiking. In fact, it's not primarily about hiking. It's about the people he met along the way. 
people who had serious physical and spiritual needs, and how David began to question his own beliefs and his own preaching because he saw the the depths of these physical and spiritual needs that weren't being met. But the reason I, I bring the book up is this. I read over half of it yesterday. It's an easy read. He gets about halfway there. It's about the fourth day. So he's up pretty high in the Himalayas, and it's cold, and I mean, below zero, and it's snowing. They get to this village, and the guy that's leading the trip is already at the village because he's a better hiker than David is. And so by the time David gets there, the other guy's already there. And as soon as David comes to the top and, and, and gets his, his, his leader there, the guy says, David, this is where we are going to stay for the night. And it is perfect timing. He says, well, why is that? Why is this perfect timing? He says, because tonight, all the believers in this area are meeting here for worship, and we get to join them. And oh, by the way, would you be willing to share the word tonight to these group of believers? He said, sure. So they had about an hour before dinner, and then they ate dinner, and then it was going to be time for the worship service. And so after dinner, the guide takes him out there and says, see all those lights coming up the path? They all had headlamps on because it was dark, and they're on a trail in the Himalayas. See all those lights? Yeah, what, what is that? That's all the people coming up for worship. He said they hike two hours to get to worship. And then they crowd into what he described as basically the size of your bedroom. They, they crowd into this hut that is about the size of your bedroom. And there's about 50 of them. And he says it was amazing. It was all ages. He, he thought it would just be the younger people because of the hike, but it wasn't. It was all ages. They crowd into this room, and for two hours, they worship, they sing, they hear from the word, they fellowship with one another, they pray, and then you know what they do after that? That's right, they hike another two hours. They got to go home. They hike four hours for worship service because they want to be with other believers. And as I read that, I was convicted and frustrated at how we let any and everything get in the way of fellowship with other believers. How if everything's just not perfect, we're not going to come. And we have an excuse, and it sounds legitimate, but when you hear about people hiking for four hours in the Himalayas, this is not, this is not House Mountain, as hard as that is. This is the Himalayas. And they hiked four hours for the purpose of fellowship with other believers. Love requires time. And to go along with that, love requires energy, obviously, in that case. But it takes effort on our part to love other people. You know why? Because they're not always easy to love. I know it's not you, and I'm confident it's not me, but there are people that are hard to love. And you're thinking about one or two of them now, and guess what? They might be thinking about you. So not everybody is going to be easy to love. Again, it's easy to love those who are like us, who think like us and act like us, but it is hard sometimes to love others. And yet, as I said a moment ago, Jesus loved those who betrayed him. Jesus loved those who arrested him and beat him and crucified him. And that is the model of love that he gave to us. And therefore, just because they don't agree with us about something, no matter the subject, we still are to love them. And it takes energy to do this and a conscious choice on our part. Sometimes we don't feel like it. You know, when the Bible commands something and we don't feel like it, 
guess what? We're still supposed to do it. You're not supposed to sit around and wait till your feelings match up with the command. You're supposed to do what God commanded. Maybe the feelings will match up later. Maybe they won't. But you're still supposed to do it. Love requires time. Love requires energy. Thirdly, love requires humility. For us to truly love our fellow believers, humility must be a part of our character. Humility means in part putting the needs of others above even our own needs. And that speaks to the issue of love. You will never truly love your brothers and sisters in Christ if it is all about you. If you are your top priority, then you are never going to humble yourselves and love one another. Instead, you are going to use other people. And that's what so many of our relationships are built on. That is, we use someone to get what we want because our priorities are the priority. And as soon as they have met our need or we determine that they're never going to meet our need, then we are done with them and we move on to someone else. It doesn't matter what the need is. It might be sex. It might be popularity. It might be money. It might be a host of other things. But whatever the need is, either we stay with them until they meet it or we determine that they want and then we move on to someone else. That's not love. That's using people. Love humbles ourselves and puts others above us so that we are interested in meeting their needs rather than primarily getting our needs met. So love requires time, it requires energy and humility, and lastly, love requires commitment. I mentioned a moment ago that this would not be easy, and so I am basically reiterating that and simply saying that not only is it time and energy, but it is time and energy over the long haul. This is not something that's just going to be accomplished this week. You see, here's the temptation for many of us. We hear something like this. It's nothing new. We've heard it before. We know it's true, and we've sort of gotten slack about doing it, and so we say, okay, I need to do better about loving my fellow believers, and that's what I'm going to do this week. And so we think about that person with whom a relationship is sort of strained, and we begin saying, what can I do this week to show them that I love them? And we think of one or two things, and it doesn't work. And so we come next week, and we think to ourselves, I know what he said last week, but frankly, it didn't work. I tried, and it didn't work. Well, I already told you it takes energy. It's difficult. And so we need to understand that this is not something that's going to be solved in one week. I do some counseling, I don't do a lot, but sometimes when couples come to me, um, obviously they come with problems. And usually those problems have been developing over a long time. And they've put off until the last minute to actually come and talk to me. And usually it's the man's fault, let's just be honest, because men don't want to go talk to anybody. And so by the time they come to me, the problems are pretty bad. And they want me to give them some advice that's going to help them. And so I tell them right up front, listen, I am not going to solve your problem in an hour. I'm just not that good. This took two years or five years or 20 years to build up. And so we're not going to settle this in one hour. Whatever your problem is, this is going to take time and a commitment from you over the long haul if indeed this is going to be solved. And the same is true when it comes to our love with one another in the body of Christ. It takes commitment. You know, years ago, it's been over a decade now, we did something called men's fraternity. Some of you remember that, some of you men. It was a three-year program that we did, about 12 to 16 weeks uh, each year. And I still, after a decade, I still get comments about that. 
I still get people that talk to me about men's fraternity. And you know what I get more often than not? The one comment I get from men's fraternity? Someone will come up to me and say, one point. Now, most of you don't know what that means. But if you were in men's fraternity, you do. One point. It means that no matter what you do, guys, no matter how great you knocked it out of the park on Valentine's Day, one point. You see, we men want to accumulate points. We want to do something really good and then think I've got 10, 20, maybe 50 points banked so that I can go slack for the next two or three weeks because I did something really good and now I can coast and another month or so I'll do something else really good and get another 20 or 30 points. Men's fraternity taught us one point. I had a guy text me on Friday, member of this church, he was in the early service, didn't call him by name, but I called him out in the early service. He texted me on Friday, and he said, with a picture, he texted me a picture and said, I am at the Biltmore at the Downton Abbey uh, Museum, or whatever you call it, the Downton Abbey Exhibit, on Valentine's Day. And here's what he said next, quadruple points. <laughs> I got to admit, I agreed with him. I said, I know what men's fraternity says, but yeah, yeah, you deserve more points for that. But the truth is we don't. We get one point because love is a commitment that must be renewed day after day after day. Don't think you can bank something up this week and then go slack for a month and then start all over again. And this doesn't just apply to the men with the women. This applies to all of us. We're not talking about marital relationships. We're talking about relationships within the body of Christ. So all of us need to be committed to this over the long haul. Now, John has done a, a very good job in this letter of simplifying Christianity for us. John has basically boiled it down into three things. And again, he's going to go over it all again. Number one, he says, you got to know Jesus. But that's not enough. Because remember, the false teachers who have left the church are claiming they know Jesus. Whoever says, I know him, verse 4. So there's more to it than that. But that's where it begins. I got to know Jesus. Secondly, I got to obey God. And again, not work salvation. We're not talking about earning your way to heaven. We're saying that knowing Jesus results in a desire to obey God. Not in perfection. None of us will ever reach that. But a desire to obey God. And thirdly, knowing Jesus and obeying God leads to loving others. That's the way he really sums up Christianity. I know Jesus Christ. Because I know Jesus, I desire to obey God. And because I know Jesus and obey God, I love others. And if I don't have all of that, you see, a lot of people want to stop at number one. In fact, when you go talk to your who's your one, the answer they, that you might get is going to be that number one. They're going to say, oh, I know Jesus. But that's not enough. You say, are you saying Jesus doesn't save? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying knowing Jesus in reality, that is having a genuine profession of faith in Christ, leads to a desire to obey God and then a desire to love others. You say, well, that sounds awful hard. It's not hard. It's impossible. You cannot do this on your own. There is not a one of us who can love each other like we ought to. We are all going to fail, and that's where grace comes in. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. 
But it does mean we ought to consistently go back to verse 6. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him. We cannot forget that. We cannot go away from here this morning merely saying, I have got to love others. If that's what you do, you'll try for a week or two and then it'll fail. Our love for others must be rooted in our abiding in Christ. And if you're not abiding in Christ, you're not going to love others. But if you are abiding in Christ, loving others will not necessarily come naturally, but you will begin to grow in it so that you are more and more avoiding the opposite and acting on the positive, which is to love one another. Let me pray.